Good morning. Welcome again, everybody, to New Anthem Church. Uh, I want to set, extend a special welcome to the guests with us today, or if you're just back for the first time in a long time. Glad you're here. What we've been doing in February is uh, talking about what leads to all this strife that uh, you see in your life. As the sermon series would indicate, the title, we want to talk about what's wrecking our home. So I'm glad you are here with us today. Uh, when you take into account the amount of abuse and divorce and depression and suicide and all these other things that we see in the news. I don't think that you could say, at least with any credibility, that we as a culture have matured in our understanding of how to live peacefully with each other. Now, coming from a Christian worldview, I wanted to know, is there anything that God had to say about these things. And so what we've been doing in February, and we're closing out the series today, is just looking, what does God have to say about what's wrecking our homes? Like if you believe what I believe, which is God created the world and everything in it, and relationships were His idea, does He have anything uh, that we can do in order to live with how He designed the world to work? And is there anything we can do in order to make the world a better place? And what really stood out to me as I was kind of investigating this is a scripture in Romans. We've shared it every single week. It's kind of the theme passage for this entire series. It's Romans 12, 2, which says, don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. In other words, if we're going to try and solve what's gone wrong, we can't do what the world is doing. We're going to need to live counterculturally and do, uh, and to do that, we're going to need to see what God has to say and we're going to need God to change us and how we think specifically as individuals. Starts with each one of us in this room. It's why I've said the best way to work on us is to start with me. If we're going to solve this problem and we're going to help shape our culture and make a difference in the world, the difference has to start with how you think as an individual so God can help us and, and where He's put us in the time and the place, He's going to help us change the world around us. So uh, we need Him to do something that only He can do. And so week one, we address the uh, home wrecker of communication. We know communication can wreck our homes. We need to change how we think. We need God to change how we think about communication. We discovered in Scripture that our words are so powerful. Only two outcomes are possible when you speak. Your words will either bring life into someone or it will take life out of people. Week two, we talked about the home wrecker that is sexual immorality. You might remember I said the problem is not having a sex drive. The problem is letting sex drive. Like sex was God's idea. He wants you to be able to enjoy it. But there are some boundaries that have to be in place in order for you to do that. Specifically a marriage between one man and one woman. Last week, we talked about the topic of money. We looked at the parable of this honest manager, tried to make sense of what the Bible calls shrewd stewardship which that simply is knowing where your money is going. I said, I've got to do my giving while I'm living, so I'm knowing where it's going, right? Like the uh, evangelist Biggie Smalls used to say, <laughs> mo' money, mo' problems. And so 
you got to know where your money is going if you get my that, that was a joke never mind don't worry about it. but you got to you got to know where your money is going even when you get it you got to be intentional with how you spend it money god wants you to have it but you've got to use it wisely today is a monumental Sunday because we're going to talk about a whole range of topics that I've cut, categorized under the broad umbrella of the hectic pace of life. I titled my message today, Calm Down. Look at your neighbor and say, Calm Down. Most people's schedule is causing them undue worry, anxiety, stress, depression, and rage. I read last week that uh, beloved national treasure Saturday Night, Li- uh, not Saturday Night Live icon, Chevy Chase was attacked in a road rage incident this week. If it's not safe for Clark Griswold, right, on the roads, who is it safe for? You know what I'm talking about. It's, uh, it's interesting because AAA did a survey and they found that 80% of drivers that they interviewed had some sort of road rage because of another driver. Yet Allstate did a survey and found that 70% of Americans rate themselves as excellent drivers. And so something's not adding up, right? If 80% of people are having road rage, but everybody's an excellent driver, what's the big deal? Uh, either 30% of the, you know, the people are just driving everywhere all the time and that's who's causing the road rage or we're not that good at driving. But the reason I bring that up is because the reason for nearly all road rage incidents is people are in a hurry. We've all got places to go, right? And you can ask anybody, they'll tell you the same thing. We're, I'm, you know, how are you? Busy. You know, busier than a one-armed barber. Just got more stuff happening than I can, you know, that's what... Uh, that's, I don't know if that's, I read that. Okay. But what if that's not how God intended for the world to work? What if he didn't want you stressed out? He didn't want you to live this hectic pace of life. I've read through the Bible a few times now, and I've never read anything in here that says busier is better. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Yet because our culture glorifies speed and overindulgence, and overconsumption, we feel like if we're not going 100 miles per hour, we're going to miss out on something. It's kind of ironic, because for the first time in history, we are working more hours as a culture. We are making more money, yet nearly every person that you would talk to bemoans the fact that this is what their life has become. The Journal of Psychology put out an article said the average American spends 116 minutes per day thinking thoughts of fear, anxiety, anger, or depression. That's two hours in your already jam-packed day that the average person is wondering, what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Is this worth it? Why am I being treated like this? What can I do different? And not only that, but Uh, Because we spend two hours of our day worrying, stressing, having anxiety, we're experiencing cataclysmic levels of stress as a society. You can Google it and see where America is one of the most stressed out countries in all of the world. Which the impacts of stress and health are well documented. I'm not going to dive into that this morning. But what I did find interesting is that they surveyed, a group surveyed, a thousand school-aged children 
and they were asked if they could have one wish about their mother or father's work life, what would that one wish be? And get this, this is remarkable. Almost every one of those children said instead of wishing for more time with their parents, they simply wished their parents would be less stressed out when they got home. In other words, your stress is impacting your kids. And secondhand stress is just as dangerous as the stress, firsthand stress. The stress in your life is dangerous. The bottom line is simply this worrying, stress, anxiety, pace of life, hectic schedules, it all gives nothing and it takes much. Jesus said in Matthew 6, What good is it to worry? Which one of you, by worrying, adds any more time to your life? Nobody. He goes on to say, let tomorrow worry about itself. Now look, if anybody should have had something to worry about, you know, like saving the world and healing the sick and all that, if anybody was going to be stressed in life, surely it should have been Jesus. Making sure the Gospel gets shared to all the world. Yet, He wasn't. He was calm. You always see Him in life, interacting in a peaceful way. Now, I would contend Jesus had a little bit more on His mind and to deal with than any of us in this room. So, so where is the disconnect? How come 2,000 years later our, our lives should be uh, much easier because of technology and all that? But the reality is it's not. Why, why is that? I would argue the devil knows what, what you need to know, which is that distraction deals with concentration. So the devil doesn't have to talk you out of anything. He just needs to talk you into some more things. You've probably heard the saying, if he can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. That's exactly what he's done in our society. He just needs to give you more options to adulterate your already busy schedule. Found an interesting uh, chart from salary.com that might put this in perspective. It shows the average mom's salary, stay-at-home mom, if you would pay her for all the jobs that she does. And it listed a number of the jobs, things like housekeeper, chef, daycare teacher, psychologist, taxi driver, laundry manager, accountant, event planner, interior designer, nutritionist, plumber, nurse, athletic trainer, photographer, social media manager, academic advisor, tailor, coach, and judge. This is what our mothers do. If you would try and provide a salary for all of that, they argue to stay at home mom would make $143,102 per year. Yes, right? Listen, I love it too. And here's why. Because Laura's left me home by myself with those kids before. And it's a nightmare. Like, things go good for a little while. Like, 30 minutes in, you can color. But eventually, they're taking clothes off. They're painting themselves. They're plotting how to murder me, right? I mean, the little baby's jamming stuff into electrical outlets. I have no idea what's going on or how she does it every single day. It's like Lord of the Flies as soon as mom leaves the house. So, I would love to, to figure out how we could sort that out for every stay-at-home mom. But... What, what was my point within all of this? My point here is that busyness, stress, options in life, all this added pressure, it's a trick of the devil. 
People say idle hands are the devil's workshop, but I disagree. Because the Bible says, be still and know that I am God. See, I think the miseries of your life all derive from your inability to sit still in a quiet place and know that God is in control. It's pace of life that's, that's attacking our well-being. And as the devil dilutes your concentration with all kinds of things, don't get me wrong, some of them are very good things like what a mom has to do on every single day, but as he waters down your concentration by adding good things, it eliminates the focus God wants you to have on the most important things. Look, the devil, his only tactic is not just to come in and get you to say no to God. His only trick is not just to get you to do bad things. He'll just get you to say yes to everything. He'll get you to do all kinds of things and be busy and distracted. Jot this down if you're taking notes. A crowded heart is the enemy of a fruitful life. A crowded heart is the enemy of of a fruitful life. As I was studying and preparing, another uh, sentence kind of came to me, and it was, a divided attention keeps you from your ultimate destination. God has an ultimate destination for you, and He says in Scripture that it's to look like Jesus. God wants you peaceful and calm and, and having a life to the fullest and enjoying life and praising Him for all the blessings that you have. But it's sad because most people in this world are out looking for more and they're missing out on what they have and who they're with. Most people miss out on all the good things that people have in life and and friendships, and family, and, and spending time with God. If you're a Christian, you have everything you could possibly need. God wants to give you more, as we're going to see in Scripture today, but uh, you don't need to go outside the circle that God has already placed you in order to find it. Okay, so let me show you this in Scripture. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did, go ahead and grab it. You're going to need to find the second book in your New Testament. Look for some guys' names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is how it will go. The second one is obviously Mark. If you didn't bring a Bible, feel free to follow along there in the notes. If you flat out don't own a Bible, please grab one uh, in the back on your way out. Some of the black uh, hardback ones are back there. That's our gift to you. Mark chapter 4 is where we will be. Last week we looked at a parable in Luke, and this week we're going to look at a parable in Mark. It's called the parable of the sower. Mark chapter 4, starting verse 1. It reads, Again, Jesus, He began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about Him so that He got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching, he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away." Other seed fell among thorns, or your translation might say weeds, and the weeds or thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. 
And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. God wants to bless your life 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. It's possible. Now, if you keep reading, what you'll see here is that after Jesus tells a story to all the people on the crowd, the disciples come up to him privately and say, bro, we have, listen, we, we have no idea what you're talking about, Okay. Uh, we are fishermen. If you recall, you came to us as we were fishing and asked us to be your disciples. You're talking about all these we's and sowing and see, you're going to have to break this down for us because we have no idea what you're talking about Jesus. And so uh, if we can do a quick debrief, you might as well have been speaking in French earlier. Help us out. Jesus does. Verse 14. The sower says, the, uh, excuse me, the sower sows the word. Verse 15, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word... Circle star, underline, highlight what you do. We're not going to have time to break that down, but uh, why did tribulation and persecution occur on account of the Word? Verse 18, and others, uh, they immediately fall away, and others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the Word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and desires for other things, we've already talked about that, enter in and choke the Word, and it, um, it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. So you can see again, God wants you maximizing your life. He wants you producing more than what you have found, 30-fold, 60-fold, even 100-fold. And God wants your joy to increase. He wants you to have life. He wants you to have a fulfillment within this world. The issue simply is, is where are you planted? Are you in good soil? Now, I'm not a gardening expert by any means. My parents have had a garden since I can remember. Laura and I have experimented with growing different things over the years. And uh, now that we live in the country, I've, I've planted a, a fairly large garden. And we have a whole host of things that we're going to try and grow this year. But uh, one of the things I've discovered, which we read about here, is that seedlings don't compete well with other plants seeds in order for them to grow well and have a good root structure and, and develop fruit. They, they can't have competition. They need healthy soil. They need to develop strong roots. They need to have access to their own water and sunlight and nourishment. And if weeds are present, these seedlings don't usually make it. They're too weak. The weeds thrive. Which here's what's interesting about weeds. I've started, I don't no, hundreds probably of plants, but the one thing I've literally never planted is a weed. Never, never intentionally planted any weeds, never purposely watered weeds, never encouraged weeds to grow, never fertilized weeds, and yet every gardener will attest those dirt bags just appear out of nowhere. That was the best word I could come up with. Well, there's a lot of words I could have come up with. That was the best one I could say here uh, about weeds. Now, in our context, Jesus compares weeds to cares of the world, deceitfulness of riches, desire for other things. And here's what I can promise you. Those weeds, like 
plant weeds are not going anywhere. Just like every gardener has to deal with actual weeds, so you too are going to have to deal with the proverbial weeds of striving after money, desire for other things, cares in this world. And so if we're going to live with weeds, we need to realize their end game. And their end game, according to Scripture, is to choke us. Those thorns do not mean to coexist peacefully with us. They are trying to kill you. Desires for this world, cares of the world, desire for more things, the deceitfulness of riches, those things are not meant to help you. They are meant to kill you. And so what do we do? Because we see that it's the good soil that is blessed, 30, 60, 100-fold. I believe that these plants that were choked up by the thorns, they were planted in good soil. We just got to figure out how to get rid of the weeds. We got to figure out how to kill weeds. What's that mean in real life? It means for the issue for you today probably is not what you aren't doing, but what you are doing. Most people I talk to don't need to learn what to do. They need to learn what to stop. See, the answer is subtraction. It's about yanking weeds. Now, this is probably going to be hard to understand for most of us because this goes against every fiber of our being, which is why I started the way I started in Romans 12, 2, which is we got to have God change the way we think. And we need God to change how we think about more. More time, more money, more stuff, more hobbies, more, more, more. It's kind of funny because retailers have actually found that uh, this is how most human beings think, that more is better. And so they hired researchers to figure out how to best convince consumers to keep buying products. Now, once you have a product, you generally don't tend to buy that product again. And so they needed to figure out how they could, how they could stay in business by, by getting you to buy repeatedly the same sorts of things. And so what they found is that people perceive falsely, I might add, but people perceive that more features equals a better deal. And so it's not that consumers want you to buy the same thing over and over. They just want to yearly add a different option to that same product so that you'll spend more money and buy something even though you don't really need it, but it has better options. Like, like, did you need the other option? No, but it had it just in case, right? I mean, that's what researchers and have found. And so people now are spending more money buying the same thing. Yet, uh, did you know over 70% of Americans use the exact same setting on their washing machine every single time they go to the washing machine? But when you look at a washing machine, it, it has thousands of settings, Yet over 70% of people use the exact same one. One time I had to do laundry because Laura's gone. It was horrible. But I was looking at the machine and I, I, I mean, it was like I was taking off in a spaceship or something. I didn't know there's dials and knobs and push buttons everywhere. I remember the good old days where you opened the washer, you started the water, right? And then you poured the soap in 
and then you put the clothes in. Anybody else with me on that? It's not how it works anymore. Okay, you like put the clothes in and you got to figure out different uh, holes for soap. And I mean, wet and soapy. That's what I was looking for. That's all I wanted. It's not a setting. Okay, uh, normal is what you have to is what you have to do. But over 70% of people, they just use the exact same normal setting on their washer. I saw a dryer in Lowe's the other day uh, that had a freshen up setting. I guess for people who don't actually want clean clothes, uh, just to freshen up, you know, I mean, I don't know. We used Old Spice back in my day. That's what, whatever. I don't know. But what am I even talking about? John 15 is where I was going with all of this. It says, uh, Jesus continues with his farming analogy. Uh, More is not always better. That's what I was talking about. John 15, check this out. Jesus says, he, God, cuts away every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. See, it's about subtraction. More isn't necessarily better. More options isn't better. So what do we do if a crowded heart is the enemy of a fruitful life and God wants me having a fruitful life, what do I need to do when it comes to pulling the weeds? Well, before you actually take out the machete and start chopping down weeds and hacking and pruning branches, you better make sure you're actually chopping down the right things. Okay? Here's how you can write it down. Number one, prioritization. Prioritization. We got to prioritize what's in our life because we know it's about subtraction. We know it's not, you know, options and we don't need all of these things. It's causing undue stress. And so we got to get rid of what's not essential. Now, I taught a message a couple years ago about this, and you might recall that the key to prioritization is that we do not prioritize our schedule. We schedule our priorities. We can't prioritize what's on our schedule because our schedules are already all jacked up. And so if we just prioritize what's jacked up, then we're going to end up with jacked up results. And so we've got to schedule our prioritize, uh, priorities. We've got to figure out what God wants us to have in our lives. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking there's literally no way, Pastor, that I could give anything up that's on my schedule. I have way too much stuff happening, way too much stuff going on. Well, let me uh, remind you of the sermon title. Y'all need to calm down, okay? But secondly, I found some interesting results that might uh, help you. A group of researchers gave a few thousand cell phones away so that they could track how many clicks the average person takes on a, on a phone. They wanted to know how many times do you touch your phone. So they didn't track if you just picked up your phone and looked at it to see what time it was or if it had any messages. They only tracked it if you unlocked the phone and then began to touch the screen. And they found that the average American taps on their phone 2,617 times per day. It's a lot. The top 10% within that study, double that. Over 5,000 touches on your phone a day. So perhaps touching your phone only 1,000 times a day could save you a lot of time. In November, the New York Post released a story showing that the average uh, person grabs your phone 80 times a day. You look at it every six minutes. Are we getting smarter as a society by doing that? I would contend no. The reason I would say that is because how many of y'all have picked up your phone out of your pocket because you thought it vibrated only to realize there's nothing on the phone? 
It was a ghost. Put your hand up. All right. I know it's a, everybody else is a liar. Okay. Because y'all have felt that you're getting phantom twinges in your legs and nothing's there. It's a ghost text. Where did you go text? I don't know. I felt you vibrating on my leg. Uh, just to really drive this point home, Nielsen did a study that showed we spend an average of seven hours per day on a screen of some sort. Whether that's your phone, whether that's a tablet, a TV, a computer, whatever it is, seven hours a day on a screen. Now, mathematically, we know we only have 168 hours in a week. And if you spend 40 hours at work or 40 hours at school, you got to have seven hours of sleep is what's healthy. So 49 hours sleeping. Let's call it three hours a day for like cooking and eating and, and hygiene and brushing your teeth and all those kinds of things. So that's 21 hours a week for getting dressed. I forgot that. That's an important one. Uh, all of those types of things. But then you got 49 hours on the screen. That means you only have nine hours a week and a, a little over an hour a day for your marriage, for your kids, for God for hobbies, just for enjoying life. Well, no wonder the world is stressed out. We have no time because we're wasting so much other time. That's what I'm talking about. Priorities. Listen to me. Some things have got to go so that other things can grow. This is what God wants for your life. Fruitfulness. And you've got to get rid of some things. What's your top priority in life? Like, what's really going to leave a legacy here on earth? Last week, we talked about stewardship and how Jesus said, I wish more people in the kingdom of God would live with the end in mind. Is that true for you? Are you living in such a way that God is going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Are you maximizing the gifts and abilities that God has given you and stewarding them well? I hope so. But you got to prioritize what's in your life so you can get those different results. Now, not only do some things have to go so that other things can grow, but the things that are growing, you need to cultivate. It's point two. Cultivation. Cultivation. Within the real world, I would call this focused thinking. Okay, this is like setting goals and working hard to achieve the goals. It's, it's giving attention to the priorities that you set in step one. It's giving attention to those things. Why is, is uh, focused thinking, cultivation, why is that important? Because you can't do everything well. Okay, think about something. When you're driving in a car, you, are, uh, you only have to attend mentally to a certain few things. Your lane, your speed, the turn that's coming up, the traffic around you. Your focus is on a certain few things that all have to do with driving. And your brain naturally inhibits everything else that's not driving related. It's why they tell you not to text and drive. It's why they tell you not to eat and drive. It's why they tell you not to stare over the person next to you and try to have a conversation while you're driving because your brain naturally inhibits these one of the two things. For most people, it's the driving part. Okay, see the road rage earlier comment. Okay, uh, but it's, your brain can't handle doing two things at once. Once. Now you say, Pastor, listen. 
I can multitask, right? Uh, it's just common knowledge that uh, everybody multitasks when they're in the car, except did you know that the uh, concept of multitasking within the field of neuroscience, so thousands and thousands of, of researchers back this up, that, that multitasking is a complete farce. It's a joke. Doctors, brain people, whatever they're called, they have proven that you cannot multitask. Now, you can multi-switch, you can go from one thing to another. You can multi-attend where you attend this and then you attend this and you go back and forth quickly between the two, but you can't multitask. I, I saw a guy give a TED Talk and, and put this in perspective, and I won't make you do it today, but he made all the people start singing Mary Had a Little Lamb uh, to their neighbor, and then he started saying, if you can keep singing while I'm talking, I'm going to give you $1,000. See, here it is. And he pulled out some cash, and everybody stopped and looked at him because they wanted to see the cash, okay? Uh, you can't multi, multitask. You can multi-switch. So spiritually, in order to calm down in order to do life well, in order to uh, have this fruitfulness, this 30, 60, 100 fold, how can you best uh, achieve this? Well, you got to answer some questions. You got to say, what am I passionate about? What should I be cultivating? What brings me joy and God glory? These are the things that I'm going to focus on. What do I want my life to look like in five years? How many of you have really thought about that? And how many of you uh, have set goals and and said, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this in order to achieve that outcome that I want to see myself in five years? This might sound weird coming from a pastor, but I don't think you need another Bible study. I don't think you need another prayer meeting. I don't think you need more Christian radio so that you can become more spiritually ingrown and you won't do what God commanded you to do, which is love your neighbor and get out in the world and be salt and light. Most Christians I know use knowledge as an excuse to not do anything. And they just want to get more for themselves and never actually do what God has commanded them to do. Which if, if they just work hard and, and do what God's calling them to do, they would already know what they should be doing. And they'd be better off because of it. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes, come to church regularly. Yes, pray and read the Bible every day. Yes, get in a small group. Yes, give of your time, talent, and treasure. But don't spread yourself so thin that you're not doing the other things God has commanded you to do. The easiest way to accomplish nothing is to try and do everything. Come on, somebody. Can't do everything all at once. You've got to cultivate the things that bring you joy and you're passionate about that that also bring glory to God. Got to do a few things well. Which leads me to point three. Know the season. Know the season. Because some of these few small things are going to have to take a back burner so that the other things can grow. But you're going to come back to those things. As somebody who's grown plants, I know there's a growing season. Not everything is growing all the time and blooming and producing and and having fruit and having vegetables and all that. There's a season for that. There's also a season where things shut down. The leaves fall off the trees. There's not fruit. There's not visible growth. The plants aren't dead. They've just shut down what's not essential. Growth is slow. 
It's below the surface. The question you should ask yourself is, what's essential now? That's a tough question to answer, especially because everybody else wants to answer that question for you. You know what I'm talking about? Their stuff is essential now, and they're projecting that on to you. Everything's essential. Geo Swiss Army Knife now has 80 essential features. I remember when the knife was the only essential feature I needed. Maybe those little scissors that were awesome for stuff. Uh, but everything's essential. Everybody needs more, more options, everything. We need everything all at once. So how do you distinguish what really is and what really is not essential? I found a helpful tool for you. Uh, plus, if you want to be super patriotic, uh, it's Dwight D. Eisenhower is, is who, who discovered it. It's called the Eisenhower Box. Okay? Urgent versus important. It's up, up here for you to take a look at. Uh, if it's urgent and important, then you need to do it. If it's important but not urgent, then you schedule it. It's what we talked about with priorities. If it's not important but it is urgent, then you delegate it. You find somebody else to do it for you. If it's not urgent and not important, then delete it. Chop it down. It's a weed. It's trying to choke you. It's trying to kill you. Get rid of it. Super helpful tool. Maybe uh, this will help some of you if that doesn't. What are the things that you do that only you can do? What things in your life are the things that you do that only you can do? I would contend only you can grow yourself spiritually. Okay, I can't do that for you. Your small group can't do that for you. You're going to have to invest in yourself spiritually. I would say only you can love your spouse if you're not, somebody else might try. Okay? That's the truth. Okay? Only you can parent your child. Again, the world's trying to do that for you. And I promise you what they're seeing out there is not most of what you need to be parenting your kid with. You tracking with me? This is a big deal. What can only you do that you need to continue doing? There are things that only you can do and you need to realize there are seasons that when you have to focus on those things. Like if your kids aren't in the house and you don't need to focus on stewarding kids well. You can focus on something else. But God says when you do that, when you do a certain few things right, when you decide what those are, when you cultivate that, you're going to be planted in good soil. You're going to be blessed 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Okay? Let me try and land the plane here. Say that an enemy to a crowded heart, uh, you know, an enemy to a fruitful life is a crowded heart. Okay? You've you got to focus on a certain few things. It's easy to pack life with such a multiplicity of interests that there is no time left for Christ. The more complicated our life becomes, the more necessary it is to see that our priorities have to be right or the end game in that is that Jesus gets pushed off onto the sidelines. Believe me, I know some of the things that you're going to have to say no to are good things. But don't be fooled. They are not the best thing. They're weeds. They're meant to look good. But their end game is to kill you. They're trying to harm you. Have you ever noticed that about weeds? They're not all, you know, completely gross and ugly. My kids love grabbing the dandelions and blowing right into the wind. And that's the worst thing that they could do, right? <laughs> Especially in the yard. Uh, 
But, but they're attractive. They want you to fiddle around with them. And the reality is you can't. They're trying to kill you. They're liars. Be careful. Think counterculturally. Prioritize. Focus. Realize where you're at in life. Different seasons require different things. You might jot this down if you want to take some extra notes. What got you here ain't going to get you there. You know, if you want results nobody else is getting, you got to do stuff nobody else is doing. Come on, right? I mean, so you got to ask God, change where, I th- where I'm thinking wrongly about this. God, what do I need to do? What do I need to build into my life? Really, what do I want my life to look like in five years? Where do I want to be? Who do I want to become? That's a good question. Who do I want to be? What am I going to do in order to build those things into my life now? And anything that doesn't line up with that, get rid of it. Delete it. It's a weed. It's trying to choke you. God's got something good for your life. He wants you to be a blessing to other people. And He wants to bless you. You just got to make sure you're in good soil. You got to get the weeds of this world out of your plot. You know what I'm talking about? Let's pray. God, again, we're so humbled just to come here and open up Your Word and and hear from You. God, I just pray that You do what only You can do right now and and fill this place with Your presence. Help us figure out where we're at in our lives. What priorities do You have for us? What things do You want to to build into our lives? Where do we need to focus for this season? God, help us. Where do we need to say no? We all want the best yes for everybody in this room, God. I want their lives to be blessed 30, 60, 100 fold. I'm praying right now for that. If you're listening to my voice, hear me carefully and say that the best yes you can make in this life is saying yes to Jesus. That the only way you can get this blessing that I'm talking about is by trusting in Jesus as your Savior. I feel like I'd be hard-pressed if I didn't give you an opportunity to do that right now. So if you're here this morning and you've never said yes to Jesus, the Bible says the only thing you have to do is say yes that you can't clean yourself up. You can't do anything aside from just trust in Jesus. He already did everything that you needed to do. So if you want to say yes to Jesus, I want to just ask you to pray along with me and say, God, I believe in Jesus. I know that I've sinned. I know I haven't lived a life for you. I've tried to do things my own way. I've tried to make decisions without your help. I'm not where I want to be. So please forgive me. I know that Jesus died for my sins, I know that he rose from the dead. I know I can be made new. I give you my life. 
help me this day and every day. And God, help each person here today. I thank you for new life. I thank you for everything that you want to try and accomplish between everybody represented here. God, help each person make your name famous. And everybody said in one voice, amen.